Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thank you for tuning in to our 25 Years of VTM podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook, YouTube, and Patreon as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsvtm.com. With that, enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to Lords of the Damned Ventru uh, for Requiem as we uh, begin touring this. Already I made Brentron wonder what it is, and I'll put it in a different capacity. It is Ventru. For Requiem. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's what we have. <clears throat> We're going to be discussing this uh, going through. And of course, as always, I have uh, Brennan with me. Hi. And DJ. How you guys doing? Hey, folks. To a dead confusion yeah. buff. Don't give time for that pause. Hi. Nah, just throw it in there. You know, I feel as though that was a quick. power play. Which is topical. Well, it's a power play. I'm throwing it in your face like water. You know what I mean? That's just uh, that's how you got to do. Eating it up like biscuits. That's uh, Or non-bread. I don't know. Like, like not bread. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not chugging it like Vindaloo. Man, that stuff is spicy. Anyway, uh, so what we have here is a decent book, folks. It's um, definitely a, a clan collection. Like, it's hard to even call it a novel or a clan book or what have you. Because it's so unusual. The way this book is formulated, it's a series of stories to tell you what the Ventru are and are mm. not. It goes over their customs, it goes over um, um, where they are. I say this because when you read this book, you're going to do what I did. Which is, okay, cool, this book is going to be answering questions. It's going to say, we are this. At least collectively. Like, you look to a clan book to tell you what the story is. Mm. At least the the company line that we're all going to tell. and. This doesn't do that. <laughs> Not at all. A couple points to look at here for the, uh, for the beginning of this uh, book. Just to wet your whistle and prepare you for it. Uh, number one, this book is designed to be informative but not educational. This is not a how to be Ventru uh, book in and of itself. Anybody can pick up this book or get a hold of this book and read it and get an idea that you're, what you're reading is something a scholar put together. Mm-hmm has been putting together to research and observe and study the Ventru. No more, no less. This also makes it really unique. And uh, they, they keep this trend uh, with, the, with the others as well, but this here is more... I feel what you can appreciate as a vampire fan of Requiem. We have a lot to contend with, mainly the memory of uh, you know the ages as it goes. Nobody ever can be certain what has happened when it's on a long enough timeline, because that's what the sleep does. Poor, poor kind of erases your third eye along with your memory as to, mm. <laughs> as to what really happened or how it could have been. Now, understanding that, don't make the mistake of getting us thinking it's finally going to answer the questions it is about being Venture. In fact, it's going to give you a different perspective, a lot of perspectives, all the perspectives about what the Venture could be. Think of it this way. You decided you're going to interview a crap ton of people that happen to be Venture. Elder and otherwise. And you want to figure out what's going on with them. What you get are interviews. What you get are excerpts of who to, who to ask and who to talk to. This is so-and-so's journal. This is a, a document sitting in, in a museum that we had. So on and so forth. And they're letting you make up what you have. Why do they do this? 
Well, I'll tell you, before we say and give them all due credit and say, oh man, it's just a brilliant way to do it, I really feel it comes down to clan, um, well, not clan bias, but uh, we the fans demand to have our version of what we think a clan should be. When you ask a company to do that, you're asking the impossible. Mm -hmm. You want them to appease every single person's idea of what a venture could be in Requiem. No way they could do that. But they did come up with a genius method to where there's enough information for you to mine through here and make up for your game what the venture are going to be for you and your troop. In fact, they unapologetically make you draw that conclusion. Because it's all you have is the, the info they're given. Mm -hmm. And what's cool about it, also info that could be used in-game, which is its intention, is to be used in-game. But it's a guiding point out of game. It's something where an ST could say, you want to play Venture? Fantastic. You're new? No problem. You're experienced? No problem. Here's a book. Could help you decide what a Venture is to you, and hopefully you get some ideas of what to play through it. It does do that. That's a dub because it's the book in your hand. However, in addition to this being a sort of reference to how one might play Venture, it does give you a collective to understand the theme and mood that the authors intended, uh, that, that Requiem intends to give you about what the venture, who they are. And that's, that's in there. It's an important foot, footnote for it. But all that is hidden behind an in-game delivery. Uh, the book in and of itself is, uh, is a prop to be used, as, like I said before. And uh, your group should be doing sort of a ask permission, is this how it's going to be if they need hard facts from you, VST. That's how it's going to work out. Now, something I'm adding here is to keep everybody on the same page. It's great that you listen. Um, not a radio, though, right? I don't want you to think that's what this is. This is a discourse, or a review, you will, of the book we went through. But in this book, there's some key questions we want to answer. Number one, during the course of this uh, review, keep your mind open to this question. Should this book be a requirement to play Requiem? If you wanted to play Venture or you wanted to portray Venture and you knew this book was out there, do you have to get it to do so? Or should you get it to do so? That's one. Does this book help you determine a difference between the Invictus and the Venture clan? That's number two. Third one are the Venture, the modern Julii. We know we went over the Julii. We know the Venture are here. We know the Julii are even mentioned in mm -hmm. here. But does it make a point to say um, the Venture are or are not the Julii? Now, all that said, what is the storyteller value to this book? And, of course, what is the player value? During the course of this, as you hear us go through it, that's what we're hoping that you can make a better understanding and answer that question to you. Uh, that's what we're geared toward to find out ourselves, sort of a discovery as we go through this book. And, and with that, we're going to break into Chapter 1 that we have here, which is a history of the Ventrue. Um, or rather, an interesting attempt at a history <laughs> of the Ventrue, I should say. Um, but with that... Kick it off for me real quick. Uh, we'll start with DJ when we talk about a very interesting named character by the name Carlisle the Ancient. So, <clears throat> Carlisle the Ancient, uh, as he is named, and remember because this is Requiem, not every vampire knows just how long you could stay standing. But from the storyteller's perspective, as if the person was actually doing the interview, he places Carlisle somewhere active. And just to kind of give you an idea of what they consider ancient, they considered him active somewhere between the Civil War to the Iraq War. And by the time that they had met him at one point, he had already been asleep for about 100 years and just woke up. Um, what is interesting about Carlisle is as he starts to get interviewed, there's a lot of things that 
particularly speak about history. And this particularly goes towards the edge of, like, what does the Fog of Ages sound like? And to Carlisle, it seems like everything that he's about to mention to our author um, is going to be speculative. And he tells him that right away. He's like, I'm going to tell you things and you're going to listen to me. And the key word is you are going to listen to me, but you may or may not believe them as they know it. What kind of becomes a little bit quirky is that the author's under the impression before he even met this guy that everyone's like, hey, you're going to go meet Carlisle? Ask him about these names. Go ahead and bring mm-hmm. this up. And he tries to kind of insert it here and there. And why it's important is because it's very highly of things that are very ventured that we'll get into. More importantly, they ask him about his names, the ones that he's carried before, one of them being Numitor. Now, for those of you who have followed us uh, previously before, um, not only through Camarilla, also about Julii and the birth of them, Numitor plays a very significant role in the mythology. Is he the Numitor? Is he not the Numitor? But Carlisle never answers that question directly. What he does mention is that some names he'd rather forget. And with those names that he does carry or has carried in the past, he carries weight. Um, I think one of the better things that he speaks about that has been mentioned in any other book is what he considers the debt to the dead. Um, and why I bring that up especially is because there's an obligation that the Ventru have, or at least he feels that all Ventru should have, which is... They cannot die, and when everyone lives, they have a story to tell. And because others have lived before them, this is up to mortals, you carry the stories of those that have come before you as your debt to society and or as your death to your, <clears throat> your, death to your requiem, because no one else has that requiem. And uh, our author kind of finds it a little bit odd, because he just doesn't understand specifically what Carl's getting into. And this is the difference between such a younger kindred versus the one that Carlisle is. Um, and the story regarding Carlisle's interview is, once he gets all that information, there's one particular sequence that I'll ask you guys about because I'm trying to get it myself. But essentially it comes to, hey, now that you've told me your story, do you have time to tell me yours? He asked the author. And the author goes like, good try, old man, but I'm not giving you that story. And the old man just kind of smiles at him, you know, as he's kind of still dazed and confused and goes, good boy, and lets him go. Mm-hmm. That caught me a little off guard. Now, there's a couple things, a couple things in here, and I want you head here where I'm going to help help massage it in a right. little bit. Um, they're doing a great job, the authors who wrote this, and showcasing that there's some punk going around interviewing Venture. Mm-hmm. Understand that first and foremost. This book is a collection. It's one of be Beckett's, right? Beckett was to me kind of a crappy concept in the first place. He exists, and he I know already there's going to be people groaning. But I feel that what, what he did was he served as a in-character vector to deliver information about canon that allowed the authors to kind of have a character they can control, kind of give information in the world of darkness as it was back in the day. This guy, they get away from Beckett. They don't want that. They want it to be that it's not one group that's going around and do it. And in fact, every clan is going to have people curious about what they are and where they come from. They can't be the first ones to have mm-hmm. it, nor the Indiana Jonesing it as being the only ones who can know, right? They update that knowledge. And what they're saying is is that that when you know and when you get curious, you're going to be bold. And you're going to have to be, because at some point you're going to have to risk it all to go ask those elders who have the answers to those questions you're looking for. Or at least, you hope they do. What is great about this character, Carlyle, in this room, when you say what they considered to be ancients only like a few centuries... It's not exactly what they meant. Their intention is, is that to the author, this guy is already an elder, but really an ancient because he spent a century asleep before that time period you mentioned. Right. 
already this guy had slept. And then all the way back to, like, there are people who, who he admits were, were reciting him back in uh, the Byzantine era. Mm-hmm. That knew of him back that far. And he's sitting in the room with this guy. And he doesn't know what to think about that. And he's definitely nervous. I think he should be. And this guy is sitting here looking old, refined. And um, by old, he calls him, what is it? Uh, Donald, it Donald Sutherland. Sutherland, I believe it yes. is. Yeah, <laughs> Donald Sutherland. He's basically an old white guy being a sage that has a great voice that you don't want to interrupt as he's trying to tell you. And they say, they literally cite in the book, what is it with that there's always these old white guy parodies <laughs> and it seems to be the ones that deliver this, right? Showing you this was made by the youthful. Uh-huh. However, they also say more on why this is a fact you know, and they tell you to go to page 30. I went ahead and went to page 30. Yeah. Go with the flow. If you have an author telling you in-game, hey man, follow my logic here, go here. When you get to page 30, it talks about what the venture are doing with that. These guys are lords. But you're lord by your own creation. You're not a lord because of anything other than what you can make yourself appear to be. It's the most important thing about this book. And I'm going to put the pieces together for you. I think I'll help you understand that Carlisle question a little better. What it says is, to be remote, to make it difficult to access you, you increase your importance if everybody knows that you are someone that has information nobody else has. So they look to put themselves in far off places, somewhere that it would be a chore to come and see you. They want people to have to put effort to come find them, to have a conversation worth having. What this does is it ups the value of their information. Mm-hmm. So it behooves you mm-hmm. to have information worth knowing. But the important factor here is, if the Nosferatu are basically the kings of uh, classic networking, net- information that, that people don't want you to have, spy network, they're your, they're your anarchists in a way, you know, the people who are going to be the fly in the ointment, who are going to you know, spread those rumors and all that stuff, um, that's fantastic. Then what they're saying is the venture are the internet that those hackers have to operate on. They're the avenue of info that gets built. In other words, you're not going to be able to do all that cool stuff and transfer all that cool information if the venture don't put you in touch with the people you need to talk to. They don't need to know that super secret info you have. They just need to know the person that would most effectively use mm-hmm. it and thus make them irreplaceable. You need them. That's the most important thing. And so what they control and what they seek to control are mortal agents, acquaintances, networks of contacts, you know, king. These are the people, or goals, surprise goals, these are the people that control that aspect of people in the city that are worth knowing, in addition to the right vampire at the right time. And because of that, they don't want to be contacted by phone, right? They, they never would be. You will go to them uh, whenever it is. You will go through the trouble to find what their routine is to approach them. Whether they have a title or not, if you know and someone tells you, yes, go talk to Brentron, uh, Brentron, I don't know why I said that, <laughs> Brentron, go talk to, go talk to Brentron, he's eventually worth knowing because he knows where all the, where all the corrupt police departments hang mm-hmm. out. And that's great. Don't expect to be the player with his phone number. Most likely he'll have some weird setup you got to go through, or maybe even a drop. Just leave a message, drop it off here, and then later on he'll contact you and let you know when he's ready to receive you. How annoying is that? Well, what they're doing is that absence makes the heart grow fonder, or a better way of saying it, exclusivity has its purpose, mm-hmm. and that's what right, it is. Right. They make themselves seem super exclusive. Now, in addition to that, they're kind of full of shit, right? The Ventru acknowledge that they're kind of full of it, right? That's the whole thing. Like, Carlisle says flat out, 
Um, this this guy asks him about Numitor and the importance of Numitor that he mentions in the story is because of a Julii reference. Remember, there's a rumor that Carlisle's sire was Julii, mm-hmm. is what it said, and that would make Carlisle Julii, is how that works. And he asks him flat out, and he says, you know, Numitor, and then Carlisle chuckles, and then, you know, basically he's like, well, hmm, you've never changed your name? And says it, heartbot. <laughs> right. <laughs> you've never just dropped it? I mean, we still do that, right? Like, the ages go by, and you need to, you know, be someone different. Yeah, you can't always be successful, kid, and in your existence and blah, blah, blah. And he kind of goes in this tirade a little bit, but he's hammering home, you are not on the playing, you're not a peer. Mm-hmm. You're here talking to Venture 101 with a guy who is as ancient as he, as he at least portrays. That's the point. And I'm going to say portrayal. This guy chose a place that is cold, so cold, the guy's using blood, the author's using blood as he's interviewing him just to keep his fingertips warm enough to write. Wind whipping through, savage cold, discomfort, but it's all overshadowed by this guy's presence. I mean, this guy set up a theater of a performance to meet this dude on purpose. And he doesn't seem to be phased, Carlisle that is, by the cold at all. But, as a side note, the author goes, by the way, this dude's on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right, they leave you to believe that he's somewhere up in the Carpathians and it's ancient and the photo's ancient and his dress is ancient and his beard looks like he's an old alchemist from back in the day. He could have been Merlin. We have no idea who this guy is. Numitor's awesome. And then <laughs> Carla goes, by the way, I- I'm Numitor. <laughs> what? He says it directly. He's like, what? huh? And he goes, yes, you would. Haven't you ever wanted to take an awesome name? <laughs> and it hits you in the teeth. Like, wait a second, you're not even going to hide that, Jack? You're just going to be like, yeah, that was, that's me. Because no, it happens all the time. And, you know, it's, you, well, you have need to be somebody different. But you also remind me and that's of what that one scene as well, where he's having that conversation and it is a cold room, but he's he's already been entranced, and not even entranced in the discipline form, but he's been entranced just with the conversation, the, the heavy shit that's being dropped. That at one point, Carlisle looks like he actually has feelings and he starts showing emotion. And this guy's afraid. That he heard something he shouldn't hear because that's yep. going to be the end of him. He literally, and he gives it, he tries giving the old man an out. Just like, by let's just change the subject real quick. That is scary right. to think about. He's like, damn, did I hear something I wasn't supposed to? Fuck. Yeah, if, if I remember correctly, that was when uh, he dabbed away tears of blood from his eyes. Like, oh, no. <laughs> and I, I think my memory serves with this. Um, Carlisle brought the conversation back. He's like, no, no, young one. I know what you mean. I was doing what you're doing now once upon a time, and I had dread that when I was talking to these elders, I would hear something that they decided later on they didn't want anyone to know. It's like, I've been there. I, th- I think this, this little interaction is the first hallmark that gives you a bit of information that as a player you need to take to heart. General knowledge that helps you hammer being a venture. And one is basically exclusivity. How to make yourself seem more important than you are. It's, it's little hidden secrets of how this Carlisle guy is definitely doing it. And how others might see him before they even meet him. And it helps them portray it, right? Mm-hmm. The other aspect is, is that they leave you with some info that if I were a player, I'd write this down and never forget it. It's that every avenue of communication that can be used to gain you power can also be used by others to take it away. Mm-hmm. This is to say that if you're one that relies on the internet or relies on the cell phone, a cell phone can be tapped. Your internet can be broken into. It's, that's just how it goes. But if it's just you, 
if you are the connection to all info, they can't do anything about it. And that's the, that's the argument. And that helps you be even, even better than you were before. Um, that tidbit is something that kind of made me feel, yeah, wow, this is, a, this is something you're going to sit back when you read this book, and you almost need a pen and pad. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you need to go through and just jot down the, these excerpts to go, okay, <clears throat> that's the relevant info. Because there's a lot of window dressing. There's a lot of shine that they put on. And then it's like, we were trying to say this, but we really want that to be downplayed because we want you to get that whatever you're reading, it's entertaining, but there's also substance. Yeah, you got to invest. And that substance, exactly. That's the exact point. Investment of your attention to this book. Rolls in, though, is they're not done here. They have a big, big point of uh, the Julii reference in here. Uh, what he says is, is that just because he's not Julii, right, he plays it down. He says, no, I'm Numitor, by the, no, we're not Julii. But, but, don't believe that talk of us being, uh, being some remains of the Julii. We are simply cousins, born half-brothers with a common father, he said. And I'm sitting there going, well, that makes you Julii. Right? He doesn't directly say he is. In fact, he says he's not, but then he adds in there, but that makes us cousins. No offense. I don't know how it works for you guys. My last name, there's a whole family with that Mm -hmm. last name. It's invested in it. We come from that. Even if you're cousins, you're still of that family. That's how it goes. You may not have the exact name, but you're invested in that vein, i.e. your genetics pull from that tree, right? That's why you're not supposed to be kissing cousins, because you'd look a little weird over time, right? That's the Mm -hmm. point. This is the same thing. But he's saying, no, we're not. And we'll just leave it at that. Says it so, or it's like it's not even discussion, he lets it go. This is another double talk mystery. He's basically, he's smug about it. It's like, we're like cousins. No, we're not Julia, but we're kind of. And moving on with the conversation, blah, blah, blah. He just in and out. Mm -hmm. It's a huge point. No, it's not. (laughs) Let's dodge that bullet. (laughs) But then they have a humanity reference in here that isn't so easy to get. They start talking about a pass-the-torch moments in here, right? Um, they give you a direct tip on how to retain the feeling of humanity from a paternal perspective. Uh, the author reminds us of the coming-of-age moment that all men go through when we see seeing fathers and grandfathers as titled elders and wish to speak to them as equals. It's just men. And this is a pass-the-torch conversation all fathers should have with their sons. And in Star Wars, it could be argued Luke seeing his dead father was that moment where the torch was passed. You know, a right that lets him know that he's a man. Mm-hmm. He is now the Jedi that his father is no longer because he's dead. And what needs to be like restore the balance or whatever. You you carry the big you carry the big lightsaber now, son. It's in your hands. <laughs> I can teach you no more. And you move on. But for vampire, this is a critical rite of passage for all vampires, where a sire cements uh, that that weakness of trust they had to create a to create or wean someone and raise this neophyte vampire into a peer. Right? Um, basically, it's saying that by becoming a peer, did they raise a rival, a loyal follower, a companion, or all of the above? And they need to see what they have. In order to do that, they've got to cut the cord. Right? The requiem begins at the embrace, but until that I can teach you no more moment or that speech, uh, you're left to wonder if you are ready and if your sire will ever wonder if uh, they made a mistake in you. And this is important for you, the player, because you've got to think that way. And before you think, oh, it's only men that get to do this, oh, I can hear you in the back, Cheryl, calm down. <laughs> um, it, that's, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying at all. What we're saying is, is that as a vampire, 
It's unisex. Man person don't care about gender. Remember that. It doesn't matter what it is. It's a transfer of power. It's a curse to be in the Requiem or a gift, depending on how you choose to see it or your line chooses to see mm -hmm. it. In that vein, you wonder about ties of the blood. They are very important, critically important. No one is embraced by accident. It has to be done. Unless you believe the legends of people dying and being born into it. I don't believe the legends. I call that more venture bullshit. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's someone. You just don't know the answer. You could just say that. More on that later. Uh, but, the, but the point is, is that, uh, in that in that awesome humanity point, and the authors don't do what I just did there for you. They let him go through it and go through that wonderful, wonderfully written passage where he's left in his own memories. And then the elder just is staring at him. As he's caught up in it. And I will get back to what you're talking about, DJ. I know why this scene is set so wonderfully. Carlisle tells him, whatever you do, whatever I say, whatever goes on, whatever I ask you to do for me, whatever I ask for payment for this meeting, whatever, whatever it comes to, the answer is no. Do not give me what I request of it. And I will have that promise that you will hold to that before you leave. Do you agree? And of course, the guy says, right. yes, I'll do the interview and thought that was weird. Now, part two of that makes more sense when in the middle of this interview, as it's ongoing, he's talking to him and going through kind of the motions, all the memory walking that Carlisle does, it actually opens up the author to thinking more. If you look at it, Carla did not say as much as this author's writing down his own thoughts mm -hmm. that he put about the meeting. This leads me to believe Carlo just recently woke up, and what he's doing is he's reading the mind of the person interviewing him. That's what he's doing. That's how ancient he is. He's getting a gauge of the person that came here, and he even said, I was doing what you're doing now centuries ago. I have asked tens of thousands of years worth of information from elders directly, even back in my time. And I've made mistakes, and I've hurt people, and I've done so much to get this information. Yet here you sit, and we are talking. And he's stealing info from him, is what he's doing. He's giving very little to open this guy up to reveal very much. And that's why at the end, you have that very pimp action. That, that's what it was telling for me. I had to think about it too, DJ, but this is what it made sense to me. That when he's getting up to leave, all of a sudden, Numitor here extends his hands out and is like, Oh... Would you do something for me? After a good moment, and he, the guy pauses, putting on his stuff, and he's putting his cufflinks together, and he goes, No, I'm afraid I won't. Good boy. That's what Carlos says, and he walks out. Why? Has everything to do with this clan is. Your elder invited you here, says you could be here, and there was a meeting. He gave you strict instructions. It won't do to have you be disobedient in Ventro. In fact, you can't be. It is your, their master's, for a reason, and you are to follow instruction, and a good venture knows how to do that when he is in a room with his betters. It showcases a lot by doing a very little, mm -hmm. and by him upholding that, that's what it is. My conspiratorial mind is he also was reading him, and he was also, it's a verification process. Carlin never says, why are you here, what makes you venture? But I often wonder, I wonder if it's as draconian as I think it is. If this some bitch, this author, said, oh yeah, no problem, what can I get for you? I wonder if Carla would have destroyed him on the spot. I have the feeling that he would have. Mm -hmm. I have every, every indicator that he would. And it's because exactly what I said. Venture have a certain bearing, a certain meaning, 
and that over the ages, this, this tradition is passed down of how venture is supposed to behave and be. And if this is faltered, if this has now gone weak, if that's what this is, oh, well, then he's one to correct it immediately and know where he is now, or how much work he has to do, or what have you. In other words, I myself, by the way the authors wrote about Carlisle, he's a very mysterious figure, and no matter who he is, is very intimidating. Well done. Uh, to start off the, the book itself. What do you think, Brennan? Out of this entire book, and really out of all the, the five clan books uh, in Requiem, because I've, I've read them all at this point, this whole scene is the one that sticks out to me the most. It is absolutely my favorite. And it's uh, it's not even because it's like, you know, the first like real scene setter for this book. I feel like in the like three to four pages where uh, Thomas Clovis is this particular Ventrue's name who's interviewing him. It, it sets a tone for the entire clan that follows after this. Because as we'll go on, we'll see more. We'll see different flavors of Ventrue. Every single person that's interviewed is very different, right? But there is, from this interview right here, you will see where all these, where these different branches of these Ventrue will see. This is like the trunk of it. This is the core of it. And how that, um, at that very end of that interaction, what I felt like he was, he explained to this man, Clovis, that we are, uh, basically not as many words, we are lords. You've come to me as a peer. I've treated you as a peer, maybe a younger one, but he didn't, he didn't call this man really like, um, like a boy or servant. He treated him almost grandfatherly. But like in with absolute respect throughout the entire thing. And at the very end where he denied him that that request, I felt as though that was a um, that was a peer to peer interaction. And that was like the final test of it. That is that part. The ending of it is the part really that sticks out with me uh, even all these years later. It, it was a heart. It's it's heartwarming and it's strange to say in a vampire book, but it was yes. to see that it was an interaction where nobody shit at mm-hmm. each other, nobody lorded info over each other, and your heart went out to both of them. One's been a vampire long enough to remember what it was to be human and remember his father and grandfather, and the ancient just looked at him to let him have that moment, but was lost in his own requiem. Along the same lines, it leaves you the impression that he himself was thinking on his, uh-huh. but then paused to see that this young man, this peer, is also. Also old enough to know the know the the importance of it, and I thought that was well done. In my mind, there is a thing because I've been thinking about this ever since you said it before uh, during this talk. Because it hadn't occurred to me, right? Like he's reading Clovis's mind during this discussion. But DJ touched on something earlier, right? When he uh, was when he hears these stories, of all these other kindred that uh, he met before and are no longer around, you carry those memories with you. Uh, he had a he had a quote that we have a that Kindred have a duty to carry the memories and the stories of those that came before them with them, Mm -hmm. because as you speak them, it brings them life. They're denied death, right, as they are now. But by bringing these stories, by maintaining these histories, they can uh, pay their worth. In my mind, while uh, specifically when Clovis was thinking about his grandfathers in this torch-bearing moment, it would tickle me to know in that Carlisle was reading his mind and he was drinking in these memories. That's more stories to tell, right? More stories to carry along. That's a good point. That's a good point. And so if you haven't noticed here, here is like 20 minutes of, of just great content already from this book. And we're not even very far into no. this book. They do 
they do a lot with very little. <coughs> the artwork is to die for. Mm-hmm. Like it, like you expect in Requiem every time. It's amazing how they have it set up in here for me. Draws you in. Um, I've spent uh, the better part of today even going over notes and looking at Easter eggs like I do. And I just did it just because I, I missed, look, I honestly missed looking at the book and how it is. And it made you feel that you yourself were researching a book that's written to make it feel like someone you were researching with others. And it's a good feel. But it does kick on. It does kick on to talk about, from Carlisle, the precursors of the Ventrue. And I know what you're thinking. What? Uh, yeah. They have, they have an idea that there were precursors here. And, and before we get into just what this is, I'm going to tell you and remind you, Grain of Salt, mm-hmm. my lovely, lovely super fans who die hard in the war, Requiem 100%, my favorite clan is Ventru, blah, blah, blah. Please do me a favor right now. Just take off that, that super fan shirt, put on something more relaxing, get your cup of your favorite thing, because I'm going I'm to beat it up a little bit. I have to. Right? And the precursors here talks about that the first venture were the secret masters of the great city of Troy. <laughs> now, if you've listened to what we've done, we reviewed the first edition venture uh-huh. plan back in the day and went over the secret masters, and oh boy, was that an on-running joke that we had. And to see this brought up again in such a capacity, I, I couldn't help but laugh. It's an homage, obviously. It's a head nod to it. It has to be. But when I read it, I was like, oh, great assault. Okay, cool, 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 cool. We have it, but then I said of the great city of Troy, hang on a second. They go on to talk about the fact that the first venture lived amongst mortals as, I believe it's pronounced as Jairs and Mares, right, are the two. And what a Jair is, is a household god. I thought it was an L. A Mare is a shaded, let's say it again. I thought it was an L. I thought it was Layers. I've been saying Layers this whole time. Oh, Layers is correct. Okay, it's my fault. Right. That's me missing a J here. <laughs> Uh, that's what cleaning your not cleaning your screen does. I just saw you say that. I was like, oh crap, he's right. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Layers, layers and mares, and uh, a mare is a shade of a beloved ancestor. Mm-hmm. It simply is the focus, the way the venture. Are. I think this is cool, and this is your second Easter egg of how maybe to if you had anything to be a template for what venture do. This is another one to add to that template of how venture sit amongst a particular group or family that they want to see well. And they kind of play a game. And it's how can we make this group as successful as possible. And as successful as this family gets, it's going to add to my wealth at night as they add to it during the day. This is where it begins. And they do it by being this household god. Somebody who lives amongst them and enhances their existence. Brings advantage to it. That said, this is where it goes off the rails. The jump the shark moment. It says they were not vampires, but they were undead. Mm -hmm. They were fed by blood sacrifice, burned by the sun, but no fear of fire and no beast. This is interesting. Why so much is because this is a... When they talk about blood sacrifice, let's define what that is. They do mean blood sacrifice. By their inference all all across the board, a blood sacrifice can be you slice your hand, drop it in a fire, and this would somehow be nourishment to their household god. And it worked for them. But this is to imply they did not feed on blood? Was it so diminished? And I thought about this. Is it that this is Golconda that they're talking about? That there was an inner peace that they had before? Weird. Like, why would that even be mentioned? And so, to this, I ask this question to you both. Mm-hmm. Is this even remotely possible to how you understand Requiem is so far? 
you know, as fans, did you let this door open? Do you go, oh man, that kind of fits my imagining of what what they would have been? It's the first tip of what a what a species might have been before, or actually of making vampire species versus this blood curse. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I uh, I I don't see that as like uh, I don't believe that's actually true. That that part, I believe that's more of like a, a frame setup, as um as they're. And I, I can back that up as we as we go along. I feel as though they've set themselves up because at this point, I mean, it's the it's the story of Troy. We know what's going to happen here. I believe they this story puts them at a point where they're going to show their downfall after this, where they gain these curses, right? Where they lose those status as like household gods into the status they hold but the, now. But the itch I'm scratching here, what I'm picking your brain for, is not what they use the, in this book mm-hmm. for. That you yourself, do you think, having a species point of vampire where they were more pure? I think so. That there was, like, they were, you do. I do, and I'll argue to that to say, the joy of Requiem is you don't know where the progenitor came from. Mm-hmm. To us, especially us coming in from the masquerade, it's so hardwired. Even if it's not true or, or whatever, Cain is the progenitor. And Cain was already cursed by God, so he was already an other before he had met Zilla and Lilith, right? So he was already an other and set aside from man, and he existed as whatever it was before he started accruing these curses. And if that happens to be the case, this is one of those retellings, right? So where's your origin story come from? I come from this, and this is what happened to us to get us to where we are now. What I, what I took this as, it, it was hard for me to see this. It's like trying to swallow a very bitter pill, because... I want the story of those guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if there was a precursor to what you were, then what were you before this? That's my question. And I'm going to show you how what they're doing is they're, they're honey-dicking you a bit here. <laughs> As it said, you said that's what they're doing. Now, the honeypot, I'm sorry to, to, to make that not so, <laughs> not so jarring. I'm trying to trigger people. It's, it's my podcast. I'm going to say that, right? Let's just say I'm being entertaining. Sorry, you know, PG, whatever the hell you got to do it. Uh, but the point is they're tricking you. They're making, they're making a sell-up point. And what I mean by a sell-up point, very much as you alluded to, Brentron, we know how they begin to use this. But what they're trying to say is that it was rainbow and lollipops before a point. And this is where that point the comes Garden from. Of Eden. That no fear, f- no fire, and no beast. That's the part that got me. No fear of fire. Mm-hmm. All right. But no beast? Mm, impossible. You had to feed on blood. That's what you're driven for. Why does the sun burn you? And a blood sacrifice, does it just mean you let them bleed into a bowl and you drink it? But then I started laughing. Does that mean there's a bunch of people walking around from your household with bandages in their hand? Right? Always? Never healed? Yeah. Not like your medical anything back in the day was so great. Unless the venture had the power to heal with a look. Like, what are we, what are we really driving to? And there's no, there's no way to know that. There's just no way. They don't have a way to explain it, and they don't even attempt to. Now, I did say to myself, but I can be imaginative here. What is the Requiem? Right, you remember back when we were reviewing that that first book and talking about what a requiem is? Mm-hmm. Basically, it's like a dirge, right? Beautiful it's like a, being haunted, haunted by a past, and it's it's like an echo that you're ever in, mm-hmm. right? That's the point of a, of that. Well, in another way of looking at this, why would it be so far fetched to believe that there were entities that existed that fed on the echoes of who they once were? Now, if they say a lair is a household god, it just means that they take care of people, but then they have obviously immortality. And, and phenomenal power, but it's only limited to the household. They never got involved with the family beyond helping as they could. 
That's one. Two, if you're a mayor, you're a shade of a beloved ancestor. And in that vein, I said to myself, what if they feed on the success of the family they care for? Mm. They're cultivating the success and the breed of what they have going on. And this is their meat and drink. They don't, the, meaning the authors who are saying this, have no idea how these things fed or what it is that they did. They just know success was its own reward at this point, And things were good for Troy. It was a tough thing to get down, but when I was able to get my head around and see the setup, some things start happening to make sense. Now, when they talk about the first king of the Ventru, as they put it, right? The son of Venus, Aeneas, right? The Aeneas, right? Um, if you're me, you say, who? That's, that's what I did, right? But if I told you Hector of Troy, oh, you know exactly who mm-hmm. that is. And if you don't know who Achilles is, stop listening to me. <laughs> It's that simple. Put it all down. Like, Achilles is a god figure to me. It was such a well-written character to enjoy uh, for what he has brought to to literature, to stories, to any sort of venture to look at the very worst and best aspects of man, of glory. Achilles is glory. We all live to be in that man's shadow, to be his equal. When we make a fighter or a character, it is to be just a fragment of what he represents, the way he was written. And you, no one, no one has outwritten the character of Achilles. It has stood the test of time for millennia. And that is real. That's how good of a character it is. But it is a character. Because we have to remember the point of a Greek tragedy is that it's telling you a tale of how they were hoping people who watched these tragedies or, or poems or whatever it is they were doing in an artistic event was to showcase morality. For you to be a better person. To combine logic and reason to dictate your life. Not mere emotion. And what Aeneas is, as the son of Venus, is he is the opposite of what Achilles is. Is the point. Aeneas, he's a divine by a goddess, right? Descendant of, uh, what was it, Venus? Mm-hmm. That it? Yeah, that's correct. Title. So, Venus is the mom. And then, you know, your dad, dead lucky dad is dancing around somewhere. He's no slouch. And, and this guy's kind of brought into the fold. And he's one of these precursor Ventura, right? So he doesn't have a beast. He's not a bad guy. He doesn't frenzy. He's not wantonly feeding on humans for blood. That's an important aspect. He's relying on blood sacrifices, which is another thing. that could be killing animals for these people to feed. This also could be a point that I didn't think about till just now. Could be what they're saying the whole time. That these are just young vampires at this point. That decide to step in and be the household gods of these people of Troy. And that's why. They're starting small. They don't quite get to be lords of, of anything just yet. But at any rate, Aeneas gets involved in the Iliad, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the whole escapade that this is. But you already know, if you're listening, that's a fictitious story. We could stop right here. <laughs> that never happened. Homer wrote that. It's, it's just, it's, it's a thing. It's, this is not a thing, right? We have, we have people named, and maybe they're related to some war that he was a part of and saw, but mostly it was for entertainment. That's what this came from, to do what you were talking about, Bob. What are you, what are you doing? It's not what I'm doing. It's Venture went all in, <laughs> according to the author of this. They went all in on this story. They pushed in the chips. They said, wait a second. Come over here, Bob. Let me point something out to you. All right, podcast guy, vampire guy. Who do you want to be a descendant of? <laughs> if you had the opportunity to pick in a point in history who you're a descendant of, that you want to believe in a story, would you pick a demigod? Or would you pick just some guy who born on a dirt hill 
good with a sword. Obviously, Who would you obviously we would have the divine right to rule over the damned. Well, there, there could be no other alternative. If we were not descended from Venus and Aeneas, then how would we be such successful lords tonight? The debate is over. I have won. There is no other alternative. But it's also bullshit, Delivered. though, because remember what we were talking about earlier, which essentially is it's two sides of the coin. Because, yes, are we the sons of Venus and Aeneas? Of course, we have divine blood. But at the same token, when the author's writing down, they're like, this is all allegorical. But he's just doing that to, like, downplay the bullshit of, like, it's two sides of the same coin. Right. He's, he's just spooning. He's like, literally, like, you're still listening? Throw another shovel manure over there. Why? Wow, one seconds. Keep it going. Yes, we're demigod descendants, shovel. Mm, oh, tell me why. Um, and you're like, okay, great. So if we're understanding correctly, these vampires are just copying the mortals. Yes. They got a good moral story, and they want vampires to have one. Well, why is that? They learned early on, watching the Greeks living amongst them, hey, they're using story for logic and reason, but we're going through the, the ages, and we need to definitely sharpen up what's really going on. Do you really think... There wasn't a vampire out there running around, just marauding, eating people where they went. Of course there was. They're called the Gangrel. Look them up. Naturally, they're marauding. They're all marauding. There's David too. Straight building god cults out in deserts. They don't care. They, they're eating, eating, looting, looting and eating. That's what they do. And here's the venture going, we gotta build something. We gotta have something that lasts. We can't just keep doing it. And they, and they get over to Troy, and they're like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Everything gets wrecked. These guys are going to follow us. They're going to eat people here. Every time we gather in groups of ten or more, they show up. Can we just can we just band together and just stop them? Yeah, you you have a point, Bobicus Maximus. We'll, we'll stop here. Here is where, but what, how do we teach our own to live better lives? And we're going to lie to them. <laughs> like, what? we're going to lie to them. We're going to tell them a great story. Okay, great one. This dude Homer over here. Hi, Homer. I'm old and I'm Homer. He's he's awesome, right? He's Greek. He's cool. He came up with this great story. Achilles, Aeneas, Hector, Fall of Troy, Priam, <laughs> Kings, Agamemnon. It's all good, right? The gods are there, everything. And and they're like, wait a minute. Well, what is a god, really? He says, well, technically a god would be us, wouldn't it? That's where we are, but we got to downplay it. We don't want to say we're the gods because then that draws attention to us. But if we say we're one of these layers... We're a household god. That's okay. And someone goes, Bob, what the hell is a household god? <laughs> what it means is, if your dishes break, I replace them. <laughs> if one of your shoe buckles fall off, I replace them. You're, you're just the it Roman means... version of, like, fairies? House fairies? <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm the household god that helps you stick around. And, and, and I'm only half-hearted joking. I really think that's somewhat of a role they took. Yes. That person who lived amongst mm -hmm. you that you knew never supped, never ate, and if someone threatened you, they would defend you with a ruthlessness, and they gave you peace and a place to prosper, but you always listened to their guidance, and they always had guidance to give, and they never aged. But they also never sought you for romantic purposes. They never touched you or intervened in your life. They were like ghosts living through your life, and that was the point, or, or the mayor version of the ancestor from afar. That's the secret. But then they still needed a guiding principle and point for their own. Remember the youth. It would, in other words, from day one, the Venture were like, we got to get a story to help those Venture mm -hmm. who are really going to run around and not get a, get a handle on feeding. And they need to figure it out. Well, what are we going to do? Well, we learned to let animal sacrifices be the guiding course for us amongst the mortals that we want to prosper so we could build a freaking city. 
So in order for that to happen, that's the way we're going with it. But this story is going to be great because if we can verbally tell them, hey, sit down a while, let me plagiarize what Homer said. And we're, de- we're in the story too. We're the descendants in the shadow of, of this dude, Aeneas, and it's important. But keep listening. Wait a minute, why Aeneas? Because he was the most virtuous of us. This guy was great in the beginning. <laughs> he was a cool guy in the beginning. That's what we're getting at. All right. You have me convinced what else goes on. Well, it's not a good story if he doesn't have a nemesis. <laughs> and in this, his nemesis is quite the nemesis. For whatever reason, and, and Aeneas runs afoul of a goddess, Juno, uh-huh. I, I believe is the name. And, and Juno throws Aeneas in the path of Achilles. He's just real happy to see it. After he's punked Hector and drug him on the ground during this fall of Troy, doing the whole nine... He runs into Achilles, and my favorite part about this is they put the excerpt of the fight in this book from the Iliad to analyze it, and they have it in there, and you could read it. So it's only a short amount, but it's such an epic story that even reading it and rereading it, Homer believed that when two men are going to fight and they're such a glorious nature, both armies sat back. They let them come to the middle, and he describes in perfect clarity why Achilles is like a lion. He said watching Aeneas take the field to go fight uh, uh, Achilles himself was like watching a town come out, Aeneas being that town, to defend against a wild lion. You know, it's okay, the lion's coiled, hasn't struck yet, but he's definitely on, on, on errors, you know, basically on, on uh, coiled and ready to strike. And it's going to be a uh, wild youth that's going to attempt to strike that lion, and when it does, that's when the lion's going to strike him. We will find out who will live and who will die, because... Achilles will leave no room for an outcome different than that. And then they add in those colorful tidbits, right? Let's not forget, he was tricked by Priam. That's Aeneas. Priam's like, Aeneas, he has killed Hector, but ignore that. Achilles is but a peasant. He's a demigod to be sure, but his father is but what? The man by he's the a, sea. He's a peasant was, demigod. <laughs> a peasant demigod. He's kind of right, right? <laughs> Venus is the goddess in your mother. But the man of the sea is your dad, right? Like, that's his dad. Come on. And then, But he didn't add the part where his mom was like some badass mermaid. Yeah. Who took him and dipped dipped Achilles in the river Styx. And what it did was make him bred for combat. That's what it did. The gods from on high said Achilles will not be defeated by a man. It can't happen. Man or beast, it would never happen. That's another way of simply saying there was so much shit talk about how badass Achilles was. So much glory this guy accumulated for himself that he had a hard time keeping a lid on it. He was winning wars by champions of armies just wilting when they realized they got to go out and actually fight him. I highly suggest if you haven't seen it or it's been a while, because mm-hmm. I did. Right now, pause it. Go pull up uh, YouTube. Look up Troy with Brad Pitt where he plays Achilles. Look up the scenes where he has his fights. There's a nice clip I got. I looked at that and it reminded me that they really did a good job capturing of what this story's telling about how Achilles is and what he is. It, he's just in another league. He seems enchanting to watch battle and do everything he does. When, really, it's skill. It's raw skill and passion. He is a being of raw passion. That's what Achilles is. Why I keep bringing up Achilles, and I mention Aeneas, is because Aeneas is boring. Aeneas is just vanilla. Mm-hmm. He's... He's going to do right by everybody, and he's, he's here for the people. He's out here because Priam told him he needs to be stopped, and you need to defend the people. That's what you're here to do. 
Meanwhile, Achilles is out here because it's called a war, and there needs to be a winner. Mm-hmm. And anyone that's going to face him on the field is going to lose, and he's the chosen champion to come out so that other Greeks don't die. Don't steal that from him. He's out here, too, to be a good guy. He wants to save all the inexperienced young men that are over there that are about to die in a war and never see home again, never see their mothers again. And he's out here to say this, I know I won't lose. Who did you bring? Who here is going to go down in glory, forever to be remembered as being the one man who died yet on my spear but saved all these people? Let's do it. And they send Aeneas. My favorite part about this story is that if you're Venture, you're sitting here going, all right, it's 2022. I came out to listen to Prince Venture tell me the story of our origins. And he just said, we're descended from this dude Aeneas. And it's this nice guy who came out here and this guy faced Achilles? Like, yeah, who's his PR guy right now? Because <laughs> whoever it is, fire him. <laughs> what do you mean? We could have been descended of Achilles. Like, you just made the strongest argument. Like, Achilles has one of the baddest lines in history, thanks to Homer. You'd never get a better one. It's, his line is epic, right? That's that famous, there are no packs between lions and men. It's, it is epic because for vampires, that is everything. That statement is monsters we are, less monsters we become. It, it, it's a hallmark to it, right? No packs between lions and men speaks of a, of a struggle. And by the way, that's the one they make famous in the film. That's not the actual line used. Mm-hmm. In the Iliad, it was something put very much uh, more, more prose. And that is, uh, there, are, there can be no covenants between men and lions. It's a very fanciful way to do it. But got to remember, when you read the story, Homer thinks there's 30 minutes for them to have a discourse before they fight. Right? They come out in one strike of a shield and they're still having a conversation. It, we know that's not what happens, but that's not very entertaining, is it? So that's that's what they're doing. But when you go over that and you think about it, hang on a second. These two epic guys meet. They're both halves of the same coin. If you're thinking yin and yang, you're in the right spot. You need to have a struggle for it to mean something, and this is why this is a good allegory. This is a good story to help you understand the morality of the situation or the morality of the vampire. Aeneas represents that human half that a vampire is, but Achilles is indeed the beast. Achilles is everything of what the beast is. The beast is noble in its own right. It is the supreme hunter. It is instinct incarnate. It does what it wants and it does it well and to abundance. It enjoys what it is and it makes no apology. This is every bit as Achilles was written as the warrior of his time. He goes down in history as the man to, to, to rival all other warriors that ever will try to be in his shadow. That's how well written he is. But they also highlight a very flawed part of him. He has no compunction or concern about the fact that the people he's facing and putting in the grave, they too had mothers and, and fathers. They had sons and daughters. They had people they want to go home to. Achilles kills Hector, and it's one of the most heart-wrenching stories to read or watch when you see it. It's like you, Hector's a great man, a great family man, defending his people, and comes out to die, is what happens. And he knows it. He's facing the lion in flesh and on two legs. It's a great story. Why do they use this? Is because I think the people for Requiem are brilliant. They chose this story because Ventru has always been cast as being these stodgy, Wall Street, whatever barons that sit back and somehow are just powerful into their own right. Nay, nay. This is saying, because remember, in Requiem, they're masters of animalism too. Mm -hmm. They command man and beast. And when you think of Achilles and you think of Aeneas, it's the same thing, right? Achilles' lion quote actually is a great fill-in for why they have command over beasts. 
They are conquerors, as they are men of the people, or women of the people, or lords of the people, or however you want to do it. Both work, right? I enjoy that analogy a lot. Those, those stories are everything here. But still, I had to pause. And I said, how does this relate at all to, to Vam? Like, hang on. <laughs> Oh wait! Is this a history book? <laughs> I forgot this is a book what about happened? vampires. Where are they? <laughs> right. And then you look at it, and you go, "Oh, these dirty bastards! What are they doing?" Um, where they're talking about the fact that only the worthy can be descendants mm-hmm. of of such epic origins, right? And they're right. Without having to say it, they're saying, "And to to be Ventrue, you are chosen, and you can only be Ventrue if you understand what epic roots we have." <clears throat> I.e., accept the story that I'm telling you we come from. And be the epitomize the story, digest it well, and become of it. And you will understand what it is to be venture. And if you can do that, then you were rightly chosen. If you cannot, we have no need of you. And we don't have to say that. It just is. Right? Whenever you must fight, be Achilles. Whenever you must win, don't simply win, conquer. Mm-hmm. However, whenever you must govern your men, your the people under you, your subordinates and everyone in between, and dealing with others, be magnanimous, be a leader. Make the right choices that are good for your people or those your subjects, those who serve you. And it's great. And then you're like, going, oh, okay, cool. I get that. I see what they're picking up, what they're putting down. Do you guys have any different take on it when you look at the Legends of Aeneas? Like, I'm curious. I've been waiting for DJ to stop yeah. me because he told me there was a lot in here you want to pump the brakes on and it, stab at. It's more like, um, it's funny how they put it in there because then they... <laughs> Once again, kind of relating what they do to the lairs and the mares to a cane. Like, Juno keeps getting in the way because she just hates on this dude. Like, she just, like, shits on him left and right because he's prophesied to continue all the way down the line and burn one of her happy little homes. Um, So she keeps throwing it in there. She throws the fear of fire. She throws everything. And this is where they start getting everything. You know, all those other flaws. And, interestingly enough, this is also where it starts mentioning how, in first edition Venture, they start getting madness. Aeneas, after he gets done doing what he does with Achilles, just keeps traveling. Because he knows that at one point or another, Juno keeps fighting him. And they're like, yo, Juno, the other gods go like, stop it. Like, you gotta chill. I know that there is no help with a woman scorned, but like, you have to chill. And he's like, but I don't get it. Why does he have to? And it's like, you're a god. You can't interfere with us anymore. So they're like, all right, here's what we're gonna do. We'll get rid of Troy and his entire, anything that belongs to Troy, we'll just let, but you gotta let him go. They're like, deal, fine. (laughs) All memories of Troy are gone. Everything that once was is no longer, and it's just this wandering warrior king now, left to his own. And um, that that's kind of what I took it as, because he'll continue down the way, and the madness comes because he landed at one point or another with a wife, uh, Carissa. He gets her pregnant, but then he doesn't stay. And she just stays there going like, well, fuck me. And three <laughs> days later, she just decides to kill herself and the kid. So she's like, curse him with madness too. You're referring to when he got the Carthaginian, right? Right. When he goes to, to Carth, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that bothered me. That that was like, holy wow! Like you get there and, and all because the, the venturer with him, mm-hmm. and the venturer there going, you need to go. Remember, there's a prophesized land where to get to. Poseidon helped us get across the sea. You you need to get there. <laughs> yeah, but I got a wife and kid now. Like my life's begun. I don't need to. You know, I need. And then someone. Grabbed him by the face. I forget who. It, actually, I think it was Numator. I think is what they said. Someone, yeah, a deep name, deep name. We'll say, or whoever had the name at the time. That seems to be the trend. Grabbed him and said, "We have to move on." Mm-hmm. And they came out of their lethargy because they were depressed. 
Why? Their city fell. Troy fell. Yep. They lost all their people. Yeah, they're not layers anymore. Is what it There's is. no household for, their to, for them to govern. Go, for them to govern. And I don't know why I couldn't speak. So by, by them being kicked out, that's what it is. But they weren't just kicked out. I still want to bring that up, the fact that when Aeneas fought Achilles, you may be wondering what happened. Um, Achilles killed him, but was stopped by Pluto. Right, if I'm correct. Pluto blinded Achilles, ah! took, his, the, took his spear... And dropped it on the ground in front of Achilles, and then whisked away Aeneas uh-huh. off the field of battle. And my man Achilles was like, "I do believe I threw a spear to kill a man, and that man is not here dead." And he's looking <laughs> around up to the sky. And I was like, "Who do you know can chastise a god and have the gods go?" He's right. You did. You did screw him over, Juno. And, you know, you did. Yeah, that was his kill. What's going on here, Pluto? Excuse me. And he's like, "Well, I had to do it because you know this you got plans for this guy. I mean, he was Aeneas did right by us. He did all the." Necessary sacrifices, you know, he gave us all the cool stuff. and He paid his he dues. He always did what we asked him. <laughs> he paid his dues, paid right? His this, dues. Is the, this is the cost. I was like, uh-huh. But then but then Pluto shames him. I took it as a shaming. He's flying with the girl. What the hell are you doing fighting that, dude? <laughs> like, that's Achilles. He goes, but Priam said, man, damn Priam. No matter what Priam said. Priam lost a son. He's a dad grieving. You don't want to deal with that. I mean, that is Achilles. Like, did you think it was going to go different? <laughs> It's like, oh, well, man, he was dipped in the river sticks. You danced at your mama. There's a difference. Your mama's Venus. Who didn't sleep with that woman? She's beautiful and lovely. She's the goddess of love. Come on. Dude, if it was a dance-off, you had a chance in hell. Ain't no dance-off. What you thinking? In fact, while that dude draws breath, no, there's no other outcome. He will send you down to Hades. Stay away. Get the hell out of here. And, like, boots him in the butt. Right? That's his result. And then he turns around and he's like, oh, but my, my wife. And he turns around to go back, right? They're all getting the ship to go. Why I think that's important. This dude, Juno screwed him over so good that it's, uh, you know that story, Hell Hath No, no Fury? Yeah. I really feel that this is that originating point. Sure, shit <laughs> Like, it seems definitely like hammers it. it home. He is salty. Because she did. Killed? What, I, th- I believe it was killed all the women. Oh, yeah, because all the people of Troy were to burn, according to Juno. Mm-hmm. They were fit to die. And so she killed all the women and children. Right, they they cooked in there, and so when he went back to get his wife, he realized they weren't getting anybody, and all he could do was take the fleeing venture, you know, the layers and mares coming out of here. He's like, "Come on, she's killed everyone. My wife is gone." And then the ghost of his wife appears, says, "Let it go, pimp." <laughs> At the end of this, you get a cool ass royal bloodline and a badass woman. You get a queen again. It's gonna be totally cool, no big deal. But I can't go with you because, like, up oh, there's the goddess. She said, "I gotta go." Sorry. Like, and of course it's Juno, who says she can't even go to be with him in death. Like, I'm out. But I got a cool life now, too, so you should probably let it go. And he's like, oh, well, that sucks. So that's why it's important to me that when he gets to Carthage, happenstance gets a wife. Mm-hmm. Of course that wife's happy she gets this guy. But then they're all like, oh, man, he's part of that cursed Troy group. It's like, what? You had, you had, you had that Troy guy's kid. You know how it is. <laughs> they're like, no, I'm telling you, they're shady. They're shifty. They couldn't hold the city. What's up with that? <laughs> their walls defended assault if they're sold suddenly they couldn't do they it they were fighting achilles yeah. didn't you hear about that right <laughs> right there's, there's, see i don't even think they caught that because anybody achilles face died <laughs> can you think about the pimp story of the people who were watching that fight everybody was watching it achilles threw a spear disintegrated a guy <laughs> think about it that's what they're really saying in that story he threw a spear and who he threw it at? No dead body. He was like, where did dead body go? Oh, that's right. Never that's right. Aeneas went straight dead. from Troy to there, right? Homer's story hadn't made it to him yet. So they're like, what? The Troy got taken down by like, what? Some bad chili? I don't... What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of interesting, right? 
And now uh, that's uh, it's cool, but obviously, you know, that's what you're mm-hmm. dealing with here. But deliberately, they muddy the waters with a cool story. Why? The, the Vince, you don't know what the hell their origin is? Yeah, no one does. The people may, but they don't have a clue. They're sitting back going, we'll choose the best story. That's our origin. <laughs> the best story. Top that, Dave. <laughs> right? That's what, <laughs> that's, this is what they're doing. That's what this book's chock full uh-huh. of. Like, you can make your own distinction, right? If you were to say, hi, monkey muck, our origins are badass, that's great. But I'm still going to sit back and go, is it, though? Is it? Right? Uh, we'll, we'll leave it where it is, right? But that's fine. I, Another way of saying it is that... Go I, ahead. I was about to Sorry, say, DJ? I think that, you know, the, the thing, though, where it ends up is that this is the only story that, as it's presented, right? Because I think we spoke about this before. Like, how does this any at, at all make sense? It's the only story that tells you that after he leaves Carthage and leaves behind his wife, was waiting for her and pregnant and decides to, to, to gank herself, and he starts following, heading towards Rome, and the story starts following him. This is where the bloodline starts to diverge as well, because they aren't Ventry yet, remember, they're still layers mm-hmm. and mares. This is the proto-Ventra of what they were before <laughs> it splits. Proto-Ventra. And, then this, the... and this is where we have like the split between what we consider our cousins, the Julii, versus we who would become Ventra. Uh, you know, I made a big note of this. I wasn't going to say because I sounded I sounded nitpicky, but I'm going to put this in here because the, even the even the in canon authors were getting nitpicky. <laughs> the people reviewing the book because they were sitting back and there were other ventured commenting and they're like they're like in this book going, "Oh, did you see that point?" Achilles said, "What were you offered? A bunch of horses, a bunch of wealth." Yeah, we learned that from them back in the day. We learned that from them. Like even then, Venture were using bribery and wealth to, to control mortals look at that right there that's that's what we do <laughs> oh yeah that's what we do and i'm like homer wrote that story like, what are you talking about like it, it, in fact they said to say that they were unbribable right <laughs> achilles said certainly they promised you a whole civilization to take me on like what are you thinking achilles is bragging <laughs> and, and then you know it, that's not what happened right so Aeneas is like no jack i know who you are and your dad's some old man by the sea Who's like, I don't know, made love to a, like a weird little seahorse. I don't know what he did, but he ain't me, Jack. You know, <laughs> consider who my mom is, and it's on. Right? And then Achilles' new fear. That's my favorite part about that story. Mm-hmm. Is writing that Achilles' new fear. Let me explain. That point where that spear was driven by Aeneas with such ferocity. That when Achilles held his shield, like he always does countless times. Achilles saw his death. He knew that spear was coming through to kill him. And knew it should have. However, did you know that Achilles had a shield layered with five different metals? <laughs> like three were gold and one was bronze and one was metal or tin or whatever. They, they get in the description of it. I was like, this cat's walking around with like an 80-pound shield. He, he's the Captain Grease. He is, but he's a Myrmidon <laughs> fighter, right? When you see that shield design, it like traps spears and the stab through and the phalanx. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I took us <laughs> back again. I'm sorry. I love Achilles. But anyway, I'm the getting back to forward. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, but when you when you get back up there, you're like going, okay, cool. So I, I put down in here, it's chock filled of them going, that's why we're Ventru. Yes, yes, Aeneas delivered that blow. That's Ventru too. They use wealth, Ventru again. This is this is what we do. We control from afar and look how well they do. They're basically saying they're the gods without calling themselves the gods. Mm-hmm. Because if you read what's going on in that story, it was hard for me to get this down before. I was like, who's Juno? What venture is that? I did that a couple times. Like, oh, I forgot. That's the goddess who's mad at him. Uh-huh. It's not the same thing. But that's because they're in the shadows, controlling or, or manipulating the mortals to be what they are. 
and they're letting them have that fight, which is what the gods are doing. Right? They're mimicking the same thing. Right. But the gods in these stories are filled with with bitter passion. Mm-hmm. Right? Their emotions are unchecked. They're worse than the mortals are. You know, why is Juno so bitter? Like you said, DJ, that's over-the-top bitter. I mean, you kill the guy's wife, boom, done. Whatever issue you had, I promise you, you wounded him worse than you could ever do. That was that. He loved her more than his own life, and you took it just, boom, while he's out fighting. That's cold-blooded. Right? That's, that's as bad as it gets. Not good enough. Kill the whole city. Lady, you rotten in ways that they can't write about. That's, <laughs> you know? But then, don't forget, she did one worse. As Aeneas goes along, she tricks him into drinking this wine that was distilled from the sins he did and the guilt he carried. Right. And then made him drink it. This began the cursing. Before this, Aeneas was balanced. And this story is ever about the allegory of who Aeneas was. Is how the Venture put it, right? Um, it, it is the allegorical Aeneas who matters the most out of here. You know, the mortal myth uh, long ago became trivial, and the, the mortal man is long dead. And so that none of that matters save what he represented. And this slow change from being this great leader to making bad choices eventually, uh, to making sacrifice choices for his people, the sacrifice being his wife in Carthage on behalf of the Venture, which are his people, mm-hmm. and then getting to the place he was always supposed to be with them, and in being their king, that's what it's all about. Because remember, when he finally gets to the promised land, there's, of course, more conflict. And he comes up with this brilliant plan to not kill their champion in single combat, but to get him to come out to defeat him and force him to be a subject, therefore gaining through that conquering mentality by making an ally of your enemy mm-hmm. was the strategy to use. And everybody knew that that was the one to go with. And they were like, ah, our king is here. That's brilliant. Now the war stop, and we only have to gain, and and are much stronger for it. Except, man, Juno's a bitch. <laughs> um, this 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 lady um gets up on him, and is like, this this dude isn't gonna win. Not like this. It's not gonna happen. I'm still gonna get involved. And that's where DJ just explained that. You know, the gods, Pluto specifically, is and they're like, what you doing? Knock it off. We're done seeing you. You're ruining the show for everybody. Every time it's you, it's screw with this guy. It's done. <laughs> Let done be done. It's done. Look, 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 look. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all the Trojans. We're going to go do something else. Like, whatever these people. We're going to go handle it over here. Right? That's done. The Myrmidons did their damage. You know, that's what it is. The bygones be bygones. We got to move on. And she goes, fine, I guess. Yeah, let's do that. But as she's leaving, it was important to remember that this kid lived. This king that Aeneas has on his back in combat that he's humiliated in defeat hasn't killed yet, but he's poised to do so. And he relaxes, and the kid's like, oh, thank God. And he, and he takes his own blood, this is the kid in the ground, and rubs on himself to show defeat so everybody could see that he did it because he was wounded in the leg. And he's like, I'm good, I could live through this, we're all right. But then Juno gets the most bitter drop in that I think she's done since probably this whole thing. There's a guy that uh, was killed and killed through betrayal. They don't get into it, but there was a means he goes down enough to be a point to stick in Aeneas' side. And it triggers Aeneas. Yep. Because he sees this guy's golden laurel is, is hanging on the hip of this kid in the ground. As in he took it knowing that he had somehow betrayed him. And Aeneas just ends him. Just kills him. And ruins that good chance to you know bridge all gaps for war. But it highlights in the story, at least for the venture, that we embody all these things. Mm-hmm. We could be as good as it is, but we are still controlled by our passions. Which is that Achilles side of things. And, and what that means. 
And it's to find a balance, to, to lord over who you are, and then you can lord over others. And not the other way around. In other words, control thyself. But no, you can lose yourself. And it's a lesson within a lesson. That's what really makes this whole book awesome up to this point, is that there is a general gist that you can get from here. Also, I thought of many other ways you can get this too. Could be telling you that they're weak because of the path they chose. Right? That that he should have, you came in here and you just couldn't seal the deal. Like, you should have stayed at Carthage maybe, or maybe in fact you should have died fighting Achilles. What, that there is shame in the fact that he lived past that battle. You came out here to see it through and now look what you did. And there's, there's many ways you can nitpick it apart, but you would be losing the point. I only say that because there are, you know, this book's been out a while. There are people who took it another way. Mm-hmm. And I did read that a little bit and thought about it. I wanted to verbalize it because you'd be losing the point. You don't exactly want to do that. And uh, that's, uh, or maybe you do. do. Do your thing. I would say, though, their overall point has more power and impact by the way they delivered it. Um, I don't know what you guys think. No, it, uh, it distinctly speaks to that because since Aeneas is the everyman, well, was the everyman made the decisions it does that's the point of the venture you rise you fall but you get back up and you keep fighting the good fight and because you never know when it's actually going to end you can't rest mm-hmm. so you're always having to fight and one way or another you got to keep doing what you got to do and the only way you'll know that you end is probably when you're dead yes there is um <clears throat> on that note there is there is something some quote a little bit farther down the line i want to i want to pick out because i think it like encaps this whole discussion pretty perfectly there's there's a part later on where one of the interviewers asks someone, well, what is a Ventru, if it has to be, like, described? And they said, put simply, the Ventru always win, because we know there's no true endings here. And this whole story of Aeneas, all of these trials and tribulations, just what DJ was saying, right? You don't know when it's never going to end, because it's not. Aeneas ended ended his part of the story as a king. Everything he was set out to be, everything was pros- prophesized to be. And that's what the Ventru are in the end. Interesting. I uh, do think that the, that that quote is not only good, but it also reminded me though, of a point that I can't escape. I also got to remember Aeneas is the guy who marries Lavinia and begins the royal lines that give us the Roman king. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Remember those people we so, read about in the previous books? The ones that were overthrown? <laughs> eh, it's a small detail. Yeah. You know, Remus Romulus, you know, all that. Uh-huh. That's going to start all that. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's him, too. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, good time. All right. Uh, but then we get to the culture here. There's more history, right? They'll get into the Merovingians and whatnot yeah. and all that jazz. And it's there. To, it is interesting, some tidbits they have in, into the Americas. But we'll let you read that. Um, not that it's bad. Just interest of time and pacing. We've gone a little longer than intended. Uh, but when we get to the name itself uh, of Venture. This is where we're starting talking about culture pieces mm-hmm. of what we have going on. And I'd rather enjoy the fact that there's a, there's a joke here. That the Venture are potbellies. <laughs> right. <laughs> French for potbelly. <laughs> French for potbelly. It, it's because obviously yep. if you were rich enough to like be potbelly, obviously you're someone of worth and power. Of course they would take it from us. It's just the most harmless masquerade breach to ever. And it answered my difficult question. I often wondered what clan Moto Moto would belong to. <laughs> Moto Moto. <laughs> A name so nice, you gotta say it twice. You might have thought he was Deva. 
You would be wrong. <laughs> it's it's interesting, right? Um, and, and in the best of ways. I mean, the simple fact is is that that's one possible name that they have to go with. Another one is it's just a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? They simply say that. There's a list of good names. There's a lot of them in history, and boy, do we like to change them. <laughs> you know, I, I why? Um, if you were a pig farmer and you were embraced 800 years later, I get to see what models on a runway look like. I don't want that model to know I was a pig farmer. <laughs> right? So I don't want you to call me Eric the Pig Farmer. I might want you to call me, you know, I don't know, some other slick suave name that some other venture was known as that, she, that you might sit back and read on the internet and go, oh, yeah, Magnus or Magnuson, that was you. Oh, don't you know it? Or you mean like, you know, <laughs> at one point you were called Juliet before you called yourself Venture? That's also uh, 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 keep that hush hush. They're all dead. Remember? That's Throw the that deal. shade out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the fucking deal. They're all dead. Yeah. Can't be doing that, DJ. You're, you're ruining secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it out. They can't be doing that. And it gets dangerous for everybody involved, right? Mm-hmm. Yellow cake. No, I'm teasing. Uh, that's the uh, that's the goal of it. Now, you may be wondering, is that it to the name? No, not it. They give you many different ways that they would use the name or toss it around or make that a thing. Um, but really what they're doing in there is that they're trying to leave room for you to understand that the whole aspect of the culture piece uh, for the venture is, again, we're back to that you are who you say you are. You're, you're as awesome as you choose to make yourself, and you are the ones who control that. That with the power of immortality, you can sculpt and reinvent who you were based on your success or failure. I wanted to throw that out there, too, because I, I think uh, this is the first book that actually really hammers down the importance of a name as you see yourself. Like, you see it often, and you saw it often in Masquerade in terms of, like, you might call yourself a sobriquet and it came along. It's like, all right, it's one thing. But here, it's actually a culture of it. Right, you don't see this in any other clan so far, at least in, in Requiem up until this moment, where your name is the worth that you carry. Because once again, going back, it's funny the authors are brilliant for it because they gave us Carlisle, and everything that we're reviewing in this book stems back to this story. Mm-hmm. Are you really Numator? I could be Numator if I wanted to be, even if I just chose it right now, or I could just switch the name off and mean something else. But the weight of whatever name I carry, regardless of what it is, carries its own weight because I'm the one holding on to it. I thought that was really cool because it also talks about, well, once again, like dynasties, family houses, and even the great Masalarius name. Masalarius. I also like the fact that they give you um, some names to go on, what family dynasty names mm-hmm. that you could just have. They're in the book, and they're like, ah, if you want to grab a familial name, clock on to like Hawthorne or Carmichael or Anastasio, and this is what they're known for, and here's some cool stuff they have. Or take a walk. Through when those zones fit the bill, and maybe you're preem. So I'm with that. Call yourself if you're old enough, you could be preem, right? Mm. Um, what if Virgil? What if you were Homer? Great story, by the way, Homer. I mean, there's <laughs> they're telling you just steal from history, like they don't need it, and you're only going to keep those. <laughs> Remember, they tell you you got to keep it alive, right? Got to keep the story alive with what's going on. Uh, but again, we can't we can't at all go past this. The corpulent one, the 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 queen of culture that we have here, that is Ooh. of course the Marcellarius. Crescentia. Um, Crescentia the Marcellarius is a horrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how to. I can't put it any better. Is she though? The, the author tells you, what's that? Is she though? Because I'm looking at the image right now, and I'm just like, I know she on the thick side, but them eyes though, they they inviting. <laughs> She on the thick side. I, 
Moto Moto. Um. Anyway, <laughs> there's a there's a quote I, I, just about her her uh, her interview, which always sticks out in my mind, and I love. It was my time with her. It was one of the greatest pleasures of my requiem. And I was like, first, really? Sure about that? I know who they are. I feel like you don't. It was also one of the most menacing. Like a mantis, I wondered at when she might be done with our verbal coupling and take my head as a final meal. I was like, oh, okay, I can see that. They ask her about taste. And this is, this is my, <laughs> the opening is so good on it. It says, it's important to have taste. You know who doesn't have taste? Dogs. They'll eat whatever's put in front of them. So too with the homeless or drug addicts. Anything to get a fill. Just because we gorge doesn't make us gluttons. Is there something wrong with a refined palate? Should I be condemned because I don't stumble into just any prole nightclub and drain dry some dancing queen in the shadows? Why is it odd that I like my droughts with some taste? Consider, kings are as much the men they present outwardly as they are the men who live inward. Taste is a combination of both. A demonstration of sophistication and a refinement of the very soul. Did you know I knew a primogen once? I shan't name who. So don't think you'll convince me. At least not until we've had a little more to drink. Now the importance of this and why I'm going to end it there is remember what Brentron said. The Mantis. is who this guy's talking to and it's one of the best it's the best person this guy's ever met in his whole requiem. Mm-hmm. Is this encounter. She's nude talking to him except for a shawl over her head. Now the purpose of the shawl, in case you don't know, um, there is a whole society of the gluten, as I'll refer to it as, um, that I've seen off and on in horror and in written fiction about these uh, terrible societies that do the most decadent of things. You may have seen it. There's a show on Netflix, or not Netflix, on Amazon. It's The Wheel of Time. They have this Order of the White, I believe it's called. And uh, it's basically the, a group of guys that go around and uh, countering the, the matriarchy that exists in that, in that world. That's really a backdrop. The point is there's a character who is rewarded in this pristine tent with all this finery all around. Remember, they're traveling. This pristine tent looks Roman-esque in its decadent level of setup. This guy is sitting at a desk, and uh, someone comes in and says, My lord, your covered meal rewarded you from, of course, the, the boss, the, um, the leader, or whatever it is, for doing a good job. And he goes, oh. He takes the lid off, and he's talking to someone, a prisoner bound to a table. And it's a bird. It's a bird who, bone and all, he puts into his mouth and begins chewing. Literally savoring, snapping the bones of his teeth. The fact that it's, you know, gently pricking the inside of his mouth. He even references it when it's done. That there's a little bit of blood that came through. It was a mixture of his and the birds and it enhances the taste. And he swallows it down. That's a derivative of something that, uh, that you'll read about a Roman emperor did as well. Invited people in to try the most decadent of things, except those birds were alive. When they took them to the table and made to where they could move, and you ate them whole. But to not offend the gods, you wore something over your head. That's the purpose of her shawl. It's so the gods can see it's you that is basically being debased and eating that thing. It's, it's an added level of secrecy. It's they don't know what I did, and the anonymity enhances the mood. So you enjoy the meal further, that only you can be so decadent. Only you can enjoy such hedonistic methodology. And even worse, considering that the guy said in this room with her, he watched her pick apart meat and tendon, bone and sinew, and it's this flesh that she's feasting on and getting all over herself. 
but yet she's got this naked body that's sitting in front of him too. And basically he's being just bombarded with all this imagery and emotion at one time. And in a way, she's still pulling off this refinement as a Ventru. That she knows Ventru culture, and she understands taste, and she understands the family, and the size of families, and why it is the way it is, and the importance of lineage, and what it could be, all while devouring some poor human. Whatever it was. And that's, and that's, ah, that's Requiem. Like, that's the, (laughs) that's the Ventru. If you can capture that scene, and you deliver that as a storyteller, you're a player, and you're able to showcase this when you talk to someone, and you're able to hit home what a vampire is, that is what a vampire is when you talk to an elder. That's how you pull off inhumanity. It's hard to follow that one up. That's it, it really <laughs> is. Hey folks, DJ here. I just want to take some time to talk about Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliations by Flyles Games. This soon-to-launch game is brought to you by the same team that's bringing you Vampire the Masquerade chapters. And they just released a trailer to go along with it. We at 25 invite you to check it out at werewolfthepocalypse-retaliation.com to catch a peek at the trailer and be updated of when it'll appear on Kickstarter, which seems to be early 2022. The game promises to have everything that made chapters endearing to us, the fans, including scenarios, investigations, beautiful miniatures, and more. With that, thanks for your time. Now back to the show. It's a, it's okay. We'll continue on. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, so... But that's, but that's what she is. That part in there is that she's your guide through the culture piece. And this section is what I would pay attention to more than anything else in the book. Mm-hmm. Because, remember the questions we asked here, and I want to start you know, just taking them off. Um, does this book give you a, a, a delineation between what the Invictus is and what the Venture is? What do you guys think? I would rather say it shows uh, a, a damn good example of how they fit into the Invictus. Uh, the, the most pressing uh, of that is the, the talk of the networked world, right? What we talked about before, the power dynamics of the, of the Ventru. Uh, the Invictus are... Um, the, the Ventru also always struck me as, like, those that seek, like, dominion over things, right, to rule, obviously, because they're lords. The strength of the Invictus comes with the connections that their members make, right? They don't have, like, monolithic control over over cities or their areas because they control like you know ceos and chiefs of police they have many different pawns at many different levels so they can get many things done without the like single points of failure right and with that description of that network that fits beautifully um they are i would not actually say they're they're the best suited clan for the invictus but we'll get to that when we get to the deva book but still, you can certainly see where they would shine in the Invictus. Certainly with that, amongst other covenants, such as like uh, the Carthian movement. What do you think, DJ? I think it's some old bullshit, because... <laughs> um, like, the Julii had created the Senex, as we had spoken about before. And it's mm-hmm. almost too convenient that the structures of the fallen Camarilla are now properly the Invictus. And the Ventra have now popped up to create such a such a system and networking, which is exactly what the Ventru are. Because when we spoke about it, the proto-Ventru were those layers, right? Household gods that mm. influenced mortals. And it never stopped. They influenced Aeneas, and it never stopped because they influenced kings. It doesn't stop because now they influence mortals again, and they influence kindred society. And now this is the perfect vehicle that they've created in the Invictus. 
Or at least that's how I see it. They'll probably never fully admit it, but I think it's a nice vehicle for them to drive without them fully having to admit and say, you know, yes, it's me, but really not me. You know, once again, some old bullshit, two sides of the same coin. <laughs> I think you're going to see that the better truth to say is that the Invictus is the watered-down remains of what the Senex was. Mm -hmm. Or the Pretenders is honestly how I see them. They take the name, but don't necessarily have the lineage to back it up. I disagree. Mm. I think they have more than lineage. There's an evolution here of what the Senex was. The Senex was just some senators. You sat back and we're Propinki. We're the Julii, the descendants. We have emperors. Yeah, that's great. What'd you do with it? What'd you do with it? Oh, oh you died. Yeah. That's what you did with <laughs> it. Right? You took it to your grave. Okay, that's great. Good job. Um, wait a second. You didn't die. Some of us did live. But you were smart enough. The ones that mattered survived and decided we'll just take a different name. Don't you see it? Why such a boring section in a book to draw all this attention toward a name? Why have, have Carlisle drive toward, I, I could be Numitor. I mean, that was me. Just quickly jumping from one egg to another. Why mention that these things live on, memories that is, of past glories when you breathe life into them by telling the tale again? This is back to what I said back in the day when it said that you can choose to believe that you don't remember your past, or better said, you reforge your past in the best light because to survive history is to win. And you got to do some dirty things to win a lot of the time. Case in point, if I made it all the way through, let's say, I'm, I'm going to say this, and I, it's an example, but I got to use an extreme example, I feel. I could use a different one, but it's Bob. So I want shock here. So let's say that I served in Hitler's regime, but I wasn't dumb enough to go to the earliest to get caught going to the extremes that Hitler did. And when I knew that the jig was up, I went ahead and switched, and I had this clever uniform all designed and a tattoo artist waiting to give me my number to join that concentration camp when I knew it would be rescued by Americans. At the last minute, I just joined in. I knew I could speak the language. I knew I could pass for what I was doing, or at least had the hair dye to do it, did what I did. I just needed them to transport me to America, and woe was me. That's it. Just to get there. And all right, but in the course of me doing that, eventually spots that I did that. And they embrace me. And then they de-teach me and tell me, you know, this is the way we are and what it is. And I realize I found a home. Now, why is that? They're going to say something to the tune of, do you know why I chose you? And maybe I don't. But I could tell you one reason I think why I would choose that guy as a venture. Because he knew when to abandon ship. That's really what the story of Troy's about. As great as that city was, Gillies is at the gate, you got to go. That said, you, you gotta say the gods are coming in and get you. You need to live where you can. You just can't live there. Why? Because that's what it means when they come for you. Figure it out. Reinvent who you are. It's gonna suck, but you gotta reinvent who you are. And that's what he did. Where do I get off on saying something like that? Why do I think that's viable? Get into how they do introductions. These people want to shock value you into who, how awesome they are. And it's the same thing the Invictus wants you to do on a level, right? It's, here's an example of how they teach you to appropriately introduce yourself as a venture. I'm Richard, in from Newcastle, and chilled to Bonaventure, uh, the Duke of Edgeville, and, and that's funny, and all the Northside hospitals. One of my grandsires was Philip, Prince of Philadelphia, before World War I. That's like a mouthful of just arrogant glory, right? Just filling you up to let you know you're with somebody with lineage. You probably wouldn't, you probably didn't even listen through half of that and who would right that's like i'm sir so and so of so and so who did awesome and so and so 
descendant of so-and-so all the way up King Arthur Excalibur. I I could not get over the small excerpt they had over that. Tickled me pink. They're like, look, this might seem very like pretentious, but uh it it bores the beast into compliance so we can actually talk and not rip each other's heads apart. <laughs> It's an interesting point, but look at the structure, too, that I'm getting to, where that's the humor, and I do agree, that's funny. Mm-hmm. They say you give your current name, and your sire's current name. Current, being the, being the point right. there. Plus your familial moniker. If it's something your sire would be proud of, that is. And the domain where you were embraced, the proper phrasing is name, chilled of sire's name, of the familial name, maybe, and raised in the domain of your embrace. And it goes on, right? It tells you why the name of the domain you're traveling from is to be mentioned, how to cite some triumph or victory of your past, and why you name your grandsire if you're able, and the alternate additional personal accomplishment and forebears you can give to be enough or just enough to not sour what you're delivering. And you save the best for last, your most profound triumph. Now, why they go through all that is because when someone does that and just hits you with how awesome they are, not only do you know who they are, that, I mean, you're not going to look them up. Mm. Isn't that the other beautiful part? Yep. If they went through the effort to give some 12-sentence dissertation of, Hi, I'm Bob. Who are you? I am glad you asked. I am so-and-so of so-and-so, descendant of so-and-so, awesome sauce, so-and-so, awesome higgity-diggity. Right? You're like, oh, well, nice to have Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> let it go, man. Just let it go. <laughs> you're going to walk off. But this is everything the Invictus wants you to do. <clears throat> now why? What came first? The Venture or the Invictus? We know that answer. The Venture. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to ask you that question again. Is there a difference? The differences are subtle. I think the Venture brought this style of onus of hyper-fixating on why they're awesome, what makes them good, and how what they decide they are is what they are. This is everything of what the art scene is. And DJ, you know this to be true. You're, you've done the art scene. What makes art amazing? Oh, because we said it is. Exactly. <laughs> and if enough of us and if enough of us say it is, that's it what is. it is. Exactly. But but what happens if somebody walks up and says it sucks? Well, how many people do they know? You get how that works? Mm-hmm. Suddenly if reminded they don't know, of, then, of the movie Bel- Velvet Buzzsaw, which is this exact conversation. That's exactly what it is, though. Don't think they don't know that. You can ask anybody in art, and they know it. Art shit. No, no artist thinks what they do is amazing. No artist does. It's up to the people who sees their art to feel... There's not a single artist I've ever witnessed who's painted something and went, this is my best work I've ever done. This is truly amazing. They all have the same humble thing where they said, you know, I was just inspired to do this, and I hope you like it. Genuine, humble, something to that degree, which is the right delivery. You want me to have my own relationship with the piece you made. It's no longer about you once you create it. It's about the emotions I feel when I look at it. And the Venture wants you to do the same to them, but they do one better. They want you to feel you can't even be part of their club. Unless you go through the right channels. Now we're back to the networking master I talked about earlier. Remember that analogy where I said the Venture of the Internet? Mm-hmm. Everybody else is just some hot app designer? That's, <laughs> that, that's how it works. Gotta go through them to be anybody. When I think of the Invictus, what are the Invictus? Without the venture. Well, nothing. Does that mean that it's dominated by venture? Absolutely not. The venture wouldn't have it that way. You can't be a household god if you're dominating all aspects of what you're trying to do. In fact, that's not how the game is played. Remember, the game is played from the shadow. 
I sit amongst the success of it, but I am in touch with those who are successful. Surround yourself with the successful and watch you be successful. Mm -hmm. Surround yourself with failure and reap the whirlwind of failure. This is a truth in life, not a maybe. This is exactly what happens. And because of that, well, at least the imagery of that, I should say, the Venture mirror this and they push it back out on everybody else. Now, why does that say that the Julii and Invictus and blah, 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 why they're attached? Well, they all have shades of it. The Julii were super arrogant, descendant of a, of a guy who died in a battlefield. Well, we're actually, battlefield, no, he died because his brother killed him. And then a Strix brought him back to life, made a deal, and he was able to pass on his curse, quote unquote. What's the truth of that? Who cares what the truth of it is? Because the Julii supposedly were killed. But before the Julii checked out, they created the Camarilla. That's the wings, that's the necropoli, mm-hmm. that's everything the Camarilla was. So that shows that they come from the lineage that knows how to make an infrastructure for kindred, or vampires, excuse me. That's what they did. I'm not going to fight that fact that someone's like, well, the Venture are Invictus. What I'm going to do is do what Venture would do, as you say. <laughs> right? We'll let you draw your own conclusions. We made the art that is the Invictus, but it's up to you to make it anything. And by the way, I can hear people screaming, oh, you're not counting for the Deva that dominate the society and what it does. All the little intricacies, the, the beauties of choice, the way they hold themselves, the way they comport it, the, the battles, the badasses, the artwork. Yeah, you're correct. But again, I'll be venturing again, and I'll tell you why the Deva do that. Because we choose correctly. <laughs> why? We win. You can't win this argument because it's not an argument. The Deva run the Invictus, so they do. Uh, aren't you Venture? Correct. Don't you want to rule the Invictus? There's no need. <laughs> Why? And I just smile. And I leave it at that. And it, it would infuriate you if you tried to drill too much into it. But this is in this book. These nest eggs are, excuse me, these uh, Easter eggs and guidances here from their law of hospitality, uh, even giving shades of how to, how to hold that attitude we're talking about, is here from, from all sorts of perspectives. And they do it to shock you and entertain you, and they do keep it lively uh, in the book in and of itself. But we're going to wind this down and actually come to a close here because of, well, time. Uh, but I want to point out, we're going to go back to this, like I said we would. Let's look at the further questions here. Uh, should this book be a requirement, you guys think, to play Venture? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it is a hard requirement. You can't play Venture until you read this book. I would, I would highly recommend it. As like if you're gonna play a Ventru in in my game, I'm like, all right, here's what we need to like make a character. This is like we got your backstory here. You this is going to help you out a lot going forward. I was about to say the same. I don't think it's a requirement to play, and I think that's that's what kind of gives us mixed feelings because we're so used to the way Masquerade presented information in terms of our, our clan books versus this clan book. But this is like those uh, those magazine ads where you see just add Bacardi and it's like everything's boring until you put splash Bacardi <laughs> on and everyone's having a lot of fucking fun. Right? Yeah. It's like you could uh-huh. play a Ventru or you could play a Ventru and then it's just like splash it on it. It does everything to it. Um, But yeah, it's I, I yeah, there's value in it but uh, that's exactly it. I think there's just a lot of value well that's not said otherwise by that. <laughs> well said. I, I really do think that almost cinches all that up yeah. there. I mean, that's my opinion. It's Bacardi, right? That's what that is. Mine, mine is DJ. So, uh, are the Venture just the modern Julii? And I'm, I'll take that and I'll tell you, in my opinion, yes. They're the modern Julii. What they did was, they died and they let them be dead, and they left them dead. 
But you'd be foolish to think that the Julii only ever stayed in Rome and never ventured out from Rome. Mm-hmm. Like, in this book, they talk about that Aeneas, Aeneas, I believe, is the right way. Whatever. Uh, the guy, the fool who faced Achilles. That when he became king and he had all that going on, he made several uh, vampires, not just him. And, and part of that is the king of all venture. Um, he did have descendants who, well, one guy named Brutus who went to the British Isles. Mm-hmm. Right. There's stories of him. And they say the real story is this guy killed his dad and was banished accordingly and went out to do some stuff. And he went around with a roving band of people who did the same thing and lived on. Now, to me, if he was the precursor to the Julii 100%, then that means that the Julii were made after the fact mm-hmm. and that these guys are descendants. And to me, that's a, a weird story to say, right? Now, I was a precursor to the Julii, but I'm still around. But aren't all the Julii did? Yeah, the Strix were, were thorough. Were they? Mm. <laughs> were they right, really? That's, that's what that says what, to me. The, what the hell like, was right Renatus? Ti- right, right around the time when Rome gets destroyed, this is the downfall of the Julii. The Julii were more than just a clan. The Julii were also a political position, I feel, mm-hmm. that was inside of Rome that made, they were the known rulers. Every bit, right? They're like the Caesar role itself. However, when Rome's dead, what is the Julii? Their whole well, clan identity was so wrapped up in Rome, the Julii couldn't exist without Rome. Correct. Which means they had to reinvent themselves. In other words, they're Numitor. Yep. We're over here now. We He's erased out. the past. We all died. We're now Venture. Why? Because we have pot bellies. <laughs> and you don't. We have pot bellies. I have. Right, exactly. <laughs> we're, we, so, we're better than you. I have one question to ask very, very quickly, and I guess you know uh-huh. maybe we'll leave this as a sizzle piece so that people could also have conversations with us. Just in terms of preference, do you feel a stronger identity with Ventru in Requiem than you do in Masquerade? Out of preference. Uh, what do you mean by identity? So, this story, the whole Aeneas thing versus what is told in Masquerade, where we have an entire lineage going down from their progenitor on up throughout the time. Uh, I will start. I feel that this is a lot more entertaining for me, I guess because of how nebulous it is, and because it just shows how fucking devious these Ventrue are to just jump ship to always win. We mm-hmm. we are Ventrue because we win, and it always hammers down we win. But I didn't feel that in Masquerade, but because this story is the we always win story, I find it more entertaining. I I will say I, um, the big difference between the Ventrue and Requiem, and really all the, this is going to be true for all the clans. In Masquerade, when I read through those clan books, there is a very, uh, I, I go away from those books like knowing, okay, this is what a Ventrue is right these are all the commonalities there's a lot of detail in there but in requiem there's no strong clan cohesion right venture in one city might behave slightly different in unexpected ways than venture in another city right because of who they've descended from and the culture of those cities meaning that there's a lot more free form in requiem right less i guess rails that's that's the big difference between requiem and masquerade for me I think that the Ventru in the Masquerade, the Ventru and, and, and Requiem are the, they're the same. They give the same feel. You didn't have to be a a warlord, board member, badass in Masquerade. That's just the popular image that was the coolest that people thought that you could do. It so they always did that. They never deviated. Most of your princes were Ventru. Most of uh, the power laid with them. And their founders were in the Camarilla and blah blah blah. Shocker in Requiem, your founders of the Camarilla were Ventru again. <laughs> right same okay. thing I same boss saying. same as the new one all right so there's that and you're saying they're not pretentious and they're not the same i just told you 
that they have a way of introducing themselves to give even more posh and circumstance to enhance how awesome they are in their awesome sauce awesome time. They're the original edgelords. They're the ones who are the best of the best, <laughs> right? I'm referring, I know edgelord is not the, quite the term, right? They're not being dark or morose about it just to be shocking. But what they are doing is saying that my cut's the best cut because I said it is. And who are you to say otherwise? Where do you come from, right? They're like nouveau riche meets uh, the old money. You know, the old money's always going to be the best. Now, you can be whatever you want as long as you're old money, right? <laughs> but if you're nouveau riche, you don't fit in with old money. Bye. Oh, how'd you get in there? Oh, you're Elon Musk rich, but you're not uh, a Queen of England rich. You know, to, to us, the layman, what does it matter? I'll tell you what matters. Elon Musk isn't walking up into the palace to have tea with the queen. <laughs> He's not a royal. Now you're just a peasant who won the lottery. Get where you belong. That's exactly how that's seen. You have to work, Elon. Right? <laughs> that's, that's the distinction. My family's so rich, no one has to work. We just have to put on this crown. It's, there's a prestige there. And, and the venture hold that no matter what version you want to go with. Mm. The difference is, is in Requiem, I think they have their balls back. Oh. I think in Requiem, they are definitely powerhouses. They're not automatons. There's not a system where we have to obey who's above us. It is said the relationships define them. Their dynasties are who they are. Mm -hmm. It's more intimate. My sire is important, as is my grandsire, and I could be responsible of a crypt where they sleep torpid while I have the reins of power of what they cultivated. And it's up to me and how I rule this dynasty while they're asleep for the next three centuries. So I have to do well. And right now I'm primogen, but I aim for princedom. Why? My grandsire who sleeps below has princedom when he awakes. Whether this deva thinks that or not, they're in for a shock when he wakes up again. And I must prepare him for that without making noise to ruin it. And there's a heavier, weightier responsibility. Not to mention the Invictus or the Carthians or wherever I interject myself will be the covenant I choose that will be enhanced by me being there because our dynasty is off. Mm. We are the power because we say so. And that is more of a scepter. That is more Lords of the Dam than it ever was in Masquerade that need an organization called the Camarilla to enhance why they while they were in charge. Why? Because in the in that game, the venture are only important when they're Camarilla. They're nothing when they're Anarchs, they're mm. even less when it's the bot. So but in Requiem, you can be whatever you like. It's in the blood. Your greatness is there. You descend from a line that faced Achilles and lived. You may not have won, but in there is the survival instinct to be what you need to be. Outlast your opponents if you can't conquer them completely. And that is the lesson there. And they don't, they're not humble about it. They know that that's the truth, which is why in the modern times, you can find so many elders that are ventured to tell you how to be a venture. If you can read between the lines and handle clearly if you, from the Marcellarius encounter um, what they would be like to talk to them. So, so to me, the Venture Requiem are, uh -huh, right? But they are still very much from the same, same cloth. I just think um, they're better good. delivered mm, right, in Requiem. Right, right. Well said. But um, storyteller value of this book is, is epic. Yes. Um, talk about endless ways to present different ventures in all shapes and sizes. To know how to properly present a scene, because I promise you, your players who are Venture typically do not go through the book to get an onus of what this fashion... Um, What's chic? What is going to be a correct way to add uh, prestige and and um, that feeling of uh, airs? They won't know how to put those on properly without your guidance. Most people don't. But this book 
is a cheat to that. And if you're a storyteller, that alone will help you portray an elder uh, when you need to be that elder. Or someone who serves an elder and what that might look like. Other than a cool accent, typically British, and then and then what not to go in with it, right? It always is, right? Your uptight British persona is typically the one reserved to be of royal line, mm. is how it goes. Um, posh, as they say. In addition to all the many little links that you can build a story from and on to have lineage X meets lineage Y and, and past relationships and story. It's all here to do that for you already. If you want a Ventru cent, uh, section, uh, Ventru centric, excuse me, uh, experience. For players, I'll be honest, you don't need this book. You don't. If you just want to play in a game and say your venture, you can do that. Um, but I fully expect that the storyteller is going to make you regret that every step of the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? You're free to do it, but a good storyteller is going to make you see why you shouldn't. And then tell, and point to what bookstore to get that from when you ask for it. Now, now, why? Because it's entertaining. It'll help you refine your story of what you built, is what this will as players. Um, but I'm going to be honest. I hear a lot of people say that. I mean, I just got the base book. I already gave enough money. I don't need to do it anymore. That's correct. And to those people, those are fair-weather players. It's okay. They're here to have fun with their friends, and that's the point of the game. Mm. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you you have to get this book because this book was made. But I will tell you, if you're looking for the immersion, that important piece of any role-playing, to be something you are not and to portray a situation and live through that, through the experience of the character you made, that's what you want to do. The more tie-ins you can make with refining who this person is in this fictitious world that make you feel that they're a different person when you play it, the better time you're going to have, the more fun it is. So it's not that I take it more seriously than anybody else. It's the fact that I want the fun out of it. And for me, to maximize the fun, you get this book. Because through here, you'll find your quirks, your background, your lineage, refine who you are. Know how to announce yourself when you go somewhere that no other clan's going to do. Because that's not what it's said out of their clan book to do. That's not who they are. You may even find, especially in live action, if you're a LARPer, you need this book. Without a, without a doubt, you need this book. If not just for the fact that this can represent a LARP piece, ask your ST about how lores work, and you can hold this and have this to look into it and know about it, um, you can also use it to know how to talk, speak, and act. It's all in here. You know, from the respect encounter Brentron remembers and stands out with the Carlisle story, me too, uh, from the Marcellarius and how you can seem intimidating and powerful in that act too. From the quips and jokes on the side that the researchers have of talking about these guys are old. It's like Donald Sutherland. We're going to go talk to this guy. I mean, this stuff is great. And it helps you across the board on all sides. So my hat's off to I say absolutely. You do. I say get it. You won't regret it. Mm -hmm. With that said, this brings us to a close of what we had. This is Venture uh, Lords of the Damned. It's fantastic book. Can't wait to do the next one, guys. Thank you guys for listening and, uh, and supporting us. And uh, thank you, Brennan and DJ, man. It's always an honor. Always fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you we'll very see. much. We'll, we'll catch you next time, <laughs> folks. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support us, please share it with others or leave a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.